Democracy is being held hostage by the adversarial nature of party politics. The people deserve better and a democracy upgrade is long overdue. Is democracy actually broken and do we need a blueprint for change? These are some of the ideas from a publication which adds to the debate about how to make our political system function in a way that's more relevant and more useful to people's lives. In this bonus episode of New Politics, David Lewis speaks to Kim Wingerai about why democracy is broken and the solutions we all need to consider for a better future. Welcome to this special edition of New Politics Podcast. My name is David Lewis. I'm co-host of the New Politics Podcast. And today I'm interviewing Kim Wingerai, the author of Why Democracy is Broken. Welcome to the show, Kim. Yes, thanks, David. And I'm, I'm really pleased to, uh, to be talking to you. And especially pleased to talk, talk about uh, uh, my book, which really is about you know, the way forward to getting out of this political mess we're in. I really enjoyed the book. Thank you um, for sending it. I've got a few questions about it. And I, firstly, the system seems to be working. Even if we disagree with the results, sometimes it works. A majority of people in a majority of seats get to choose the prime minister. Why should we change it? You know, I actually don't think it is it is working as such. I don't think democracy is working uh, as it was originally intended. And maybe it never has, but that shouldn't stop us from continuing to improve it. I think we live in a particularly, uh, not a democracy. I think uh, the parties have, of the last 100, 200 years, have really usurped control over the whole democratic process. Uh, we elect party delegates. We don't elect representatives the way democracy was originally intended to work. And I, I, in many ways, uh, the more I write about it, the more I talk to people about it, the more I observe. Uh, that, to me, is the core of the problem, is, is, is that we have a political class which runs government uh, and representation is an illusion that we get told about every three or four years when we go to the polls. In between, we have no influence, we have no impact. All we do, all, all we do is, is uh, kind of either go with, the, go with the flow or complain. Most people just go with the flow, I recognise that. Who do you think is to blame for this? That's who is to blame? I think, you know, we're, we're kind of all a bit to blame. Um, you know, it's very easy to, as a lot of my contemporaries do, um, kind of just, oh, it's just too hard, it's just... Uh, uh, you know, it's just what they do down in Canberra uh, or, or wherever it is. It doesn't really impact on me. So, you know, people don't care. And I think that's, that is a big part of the problem. You know, we tend to pat ourselves on the back here in Australia that, you know, we have compulsory voting. So we have 80% uh, or sort of 90% plus that actually votes that can vote from those that can vote. So uh, I come from, originally come from Norway, uh, where there's no compulsory voting and 80% vote. Uh, and partly because there is a high degree of, I believe, actual engagement. And then you go to the other end of the extreme in uh, in, in the US where at best 35 to I think uh, maybe 40% at most uh, vote out of those that can vote. Mm. Um, so I think in a way we're all to blame mm. uh, in as much as we need to be engaged. Is that the solution? It's part of the solution. Um, is the system to blame? I think the system, not just the 
not just what I refer to as the particularity, but also the fact that, that there's such a cozy relationship between uh, economic powers and political powers. And that, you know, that's, that's been around for a very long time. Uh, unions have influence, big business have, have influence, and above all, media has undue influence over the political process. So that is, there's some reforms that I think kind of maybe have more the low-hanging fruit of reforms that we can do to start addressing that. Because if anything, that I think is the biggest part of the problem, that, that the causal relationship between the powerful and the political. Yeah. Uh, would you say the media is a part of that? <laughs> <laughs> There's a leading question. Uh, yes, it certainly is, and and, and uh, which is why one of my one of the things that I I, I do that as I now have have time to be right and to have opinions and, and be public about it. I also recently started um, uh, the Independence.org.au, which is there to promote uh, independent media, which loosely defined at the moment is anything that's not. Murdoch, uh, Fairfax, or, uh, or I was about to say Channel 7, but West Media. So looking at reforms to democracy, things like the French Revolution that you spend time on in your book lead to the terror. Does this bode well for any democratic reform, or is that a one-off type thing, do you think? I think it's anything but a one-off. Uh, I think that is really what history has shown, and that's that's a really scary prospect. I mean, our generation have lived in peace all our lives. Mm. So, or I should say, our generation in the Western world has mm. pretty much lived in peace all our lives, mm. uh, and and uh, which is my parents' generation went through the the, uh, the occupation of the Second World War, um, and you know the French Revolution is an example. The Arab Spring is another example. Uh, the, you know the whole history is littered with examples like that. The change is such a hard thing. And a lot of the time, there has to be, there has sort of has to be violence. There has to be a revolution, which then ends up being reversed, and then something else comes up after that, which is really what happened in France. That the, mm. the second re- revolution was the one that actually led to democracy. The first revolution only led to the terror, as you said, mm. to mm. Napoleon. Mm. Um, so I'm not for a moment advocating that that is the way it should be. That is the way it has been. Is there a way around that? There were some signs, I think, uh, through the Arab Spring mm-hmm. uh, with the greater degree of engagement probably than, than we've ever seen in the world. You can look to uh, India, how it managed to get a democracy of sorts uh, out of breaking, breaking away from their colonial powers. So there are examples in history where it can happen more or less peacefully. Uh, but even in India, uh, you know, those that had to move to Pakistan and Bangladesh would disagree that it was particularly peaceful. I hope that the facilities we have in this day and age of engagement, including social media and, and just general communications, uh, will eventually enable us to start making the changes that I strongly believe we need to make. And the other comment I will make on, on that too is um, that I. I have faith in the young generation. Uh, I really do, uh, and I hope that um, you know we're seeing it, seeing it at the moment uh, through activism on the environment. Uh, but I hope that the generation, see, as the younger generation always always do, see the world in a different way and are able to act on it. That's my my utopian hope. 
One of the other things you bring up that's been a one of those issues that bubble round Australian demo, uh, Australian political talk is the Bill of Rights. Given the issues of, say, the American Bill of Rights, for example, gun ownership and, and what that means, or concepts like free speech, which, of course, have risen, risen its head in Australia at the moment, can we actually construct a Bill of Rights that will remain relatively consistent for over a century or more? What rights do you think should be enshrined? You know, when I wrote my book, I, I did quite a bit of uh, research on that and, and, and read the different kinds of bills of rights that are in, in various constitutions around the world, mm-hmm. and none of them are perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came to the, to the conclusion that the, the UN Charter of 1948 is as close as we get to a bill of rights that is uh, all-encompassing. Uh, but that too, of course, does need updating and for instance it doesn't really deal sufficiently with uh, with, um, uh, uh, with gender issues and it certainly doesn't deal at all with with um, uh, sexual orientation as, as, as part of the bills of, of the rights that need to be protected mm-hmm. but as a construct um, as a starting point mm-hmm. that's to me is about as, as good as it gets. How would you propose the changes to the system would be implemented? I guess that comes back to what we were talking about before in terms of what the problem is and, and, and it, you know, do we have to have a revolution and, and, and do we have to have a violent revolution? You know, and sometimes you kind of despair when you, when you think about these things and write about these things and, and voice your opinion on it that our biggest fear is not death. Our biggest fear is change. Mm-hmm. And that holds us back and has always held us back. Uh, we, we're afraid of change. We're afraid of the unknown. Uh, and that kind of permeates the human existence, doesn't it? Um, so, and, and fear of change also comes from, uh, from that, that need to belong. And there's a tipping point somewhere along the way that, that uh, in a society that looks for change, they, there comes a tipping point of where that that need for change becomes overwhelming. Uh, you know, we look at what happened in um, in the Soviet Union as a, a as from the eyes of uh, Gorbachev and and those that that actually made that change happen. But they only made that change happen because they understood that the people would no longer put up with with, with the status quo. I, I come back also again to the to the Arab Spring, which mm. kind of has petered out into mostly into uh, in, into just another kind of dictatorship that that uh, enjoyed it for a brief spell. Uh, but it is that kind of groundswell, and I, I can see some signs of it. I, again, I, I come back to to young people, but we've got to keep, keep talking about it. And I think the platforms we have to keep talking about it for all their faults, for all the hate speech and and all of the, the, the flaws of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all of that, it does provide us with a, a, a ubiquitous platform that we haven't had before. Um, so I think the change has to come from us, from the people. There is no other way. It's not going to come from the powers that be mm. until the powers that be mm. understand that change has to happen. Mm. So have you had support for these ideas? either from people in power or the general public? Um, 
when you first publish a book, and I self-published, and, and mm. uh, you know, I only started writing full time uh, uh, less than three years ago. So, so I sent the book out to oh, forty or fifty uh, political journalists, uh, everyone from, uh, from you know from the ABC through throughout the BFX and, and Murdoch Press and. Uh, wherever I could, wherever I could think of, I sent the book out and uh, had very few responses. Though the few responses that I did have were very positive and encouraging, because I'm, uh, you know, carrying on a lot about the particularity and the, and the problems of the major parties, the way they uh, control our democracy. Uh, also had some good responses from some of the independent can- candidates um, that kind of look at Canberra through a different, different, different prism. So. Uh, but it's a long. This is a. This is for me is a. Is very much a, a, a long game for, for want of a better word. That it, this is something I do out of the passion that I believe there are, there are changes that need need to be done. Uh, as I jokingly say, uh, I turn to writing when I turn sixty. I'll be a writer for the next thirty years, and then maybe I'll become a musician. <laughs> Get my voice out there as much as I can. And it, it, it's happening slowly, slowly. Right, so just to dig into the book a little bit. One of the things you um, argue for is to diminish or abolish the states of the uh, Commonwealth. Why the states? Why not the federal level or local councils? Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, And I actually don't make a whole, you know, I don't talk about that a whole lot. I've always held that view, but I'm also not convinced exactly where that line should be drawn. My view in general is that we have too much there, there is there's too much overlap. There's too there's too too many uh, too many people involved in 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 in, in governing this country. Uh, mm. Australia has more politicians per capita, mm. uh, as in paid elected politicians per capita than any other Western nation or any other true democracy in the world. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of overlap. Uh, you know, the little things like when I moved from Victoria to Queensland, why on earth do I need to get a new driver's license? Yes, you know that's just one of the yeah. examples. But also, as someone who's run run small business in both in Victoria and in Queensland, you know, the, just the differences in in regulation uh, that are just completely unnecessary. Our legal system that requires a criminal to be extradited from one state to another uh, it's, it's just ridiculous. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's lots of examples like that that are that can be addressed, and that that's more goes to the point of of overlap, um, and. You know, the way you framed your question also leads me to a kind of changing, maybe changing my thinking on this a little bit. That uh, maybe it's more federal government that needs to be more focused on federal uh, and not so focused on on, on, on state issues. If, if why then do we have state governments if the federal gets gets involved in in, in state issues? So, uh, and I'm also a big advocate for for. Uh, Think global and act local, local mm. and strengthening of local councils uh, in in a lot of different ways. Uh, I think is also important, and, and maybe the most important reform is is to get engagement. Is is to have because engagement is about community. To have communities being stronger and more unified, I think is is um, also part of an overall reform picture. I want to commend your book to our listeners. I think it's a very good book with lots of thought-provoking ideas. Uh, I want to thank you very much for joining us. No, thanks. Thanks, David. I really appreciate your time, the time. And, and if I can just add to, uh, to what you said about the book is that the, the uh, subtitle is A Blueprint for Change, 
and I very deliberately deliberately wrote it to focus on the changes that I believe can happen to start a debate, because that's what we need to do. We need to start the debate about some fundamental changes that need to happen. That was Kim Wingerai speaking with David Lewis about his book, Why Democracy is Broken, A Blueprint for Change. And if you're interested, you can purchase the book as a paperback or ebook through amazon.com.au. Kim is also the founder of The Independence website, an aggregator of independent news from all around Australia. Now, if you don't know what a news aggregator is, go to theindependence.org.au and check it out. It's quite an interesting website. I'm Eddie Djokovic. You can listen to the New Politics podcast on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud and get further updates at newpolitics.com.au. Thanks for listening into this bonus episode of New Politics and we'll speak to you again soon.